Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Hi everyone, it's me, Liz, not Kevin A. Gregg. He'll be back next week. For this week, you get to enjoy my one-woman show one last time. I think the Ninth Circuit must have known that it was my last week, because they decided to go all out and publish seven cases. We've also got a case each from the Second Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. Here we go. First up is Germain v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on August 18, 2021. This is a case about aggravated felonies under INA Section 101A43P relating to document fraud. Mr. Germain became a lawful permanent resident of the United States in 2007. In around 2017, he was then convicted of three counts of violating 18 U.S. Code Section 1546A for making false statements in an immigration application, and he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment for each count. DHS then placed him in removal proceedings, charging him as removable under INA Section 237A2AIII for having been convicted of an aggravated felony based on his convictions under 18 U.S.C. Section 1546A. INA Section 101A43P defines an aggravated felony as, quote, an offense described in Section 1546A of Title 18, parens, relating to document fraud, close parens, for which the term of imprisonment is at least 12 months, end quote. Mr. Germain moved to terminate his removal proceedings and argued that, while he had been convicted under 18 U.S.C. Section 1546A, he was not removable under INA Section 237A2AIII because he had not committed an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43P. This is because, according to Mr. Germain's argument, his convictions were not, quote, relating to document fraud, end quote. He then also filed an application for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA. But the IJ denied Mr. Germain's application for cancellation of removal, rejecting Mr. Germain's argument and finding that he had committed aggravated felonies as defined at INA Section 101A43P and as a result was removable under INA Section 237A2AIII, and the BIA affirmed. On petition for review, the 11th Circuit cited its 2020 decision in United States v. Jimenez, in which it explained that Section 1546A is a criminal statute that, quote, contains four unnumbered paragraphs, each of which criminalizes different fraudulent conduct involving immigration documents, end quote. Mr. Germain argued that only the first three paragraphs related to document fraud, whereas the fourth paragraph that he was convicted under does not. But the 11th Circuit disagreed because, according to the 11th Circuit, 
Paragraph 4 of Section 1546A, quote, clearly relates to document fraud, end quote, as it, quote, criminalizes making false statements of material fact in certain immigration documents, end quote. In other words, quote, all four paragraphs of Section 1546A relate to document fraud, end quote. This alone, according to the 11th Circuit, quote, fatally undermined, end quote, Mr. Germain's argument. But the 11th Circuit still continued by analyzing the language of INA Section 101A43P itself and concluded that the provision, quote, does not contain any words that are limiting in nature, end quote. In doing so, it compared INA Section 101A43P's relating to document fraud parenthetical with the limiting language found in INA Section 101A43F, which defines an aggravated felony as a, quote, crime of violence, parens, as defined in Section 16 of Title 18, but not including a purely political offense, close parens, end quote. According to the 11th Circuit, the fact that subsection F included the limiting phrase, quote, but not including, end quote, while subsection P did not, the 11th Circuit found that that, quote, demonstrates that the parenthetical in subsection P is descriptive rather than limiting, end quote. In rebuttal, Mr. Germain argued that if Congress had intended to penalize all of 18 U.S.C. section 1546A, it would have left the relating to document fraud parenthetical out of INA section 101A43P. But the 11th Circuit again disagreed, and it provided examples of other, quote, descriptive parentheticals, end quote, that Congress allegedly included throughout the INA, quote, to make reading the statute easier, end quote. The 11th Circuit then notes that while Mr. Germain pointed to no other courts that had found the relating to document fraud parenthetical or any similar parentheticals to be limiting, the 11th Circuit cited to other courts that had found similar parentheticals to be descriptive, including the 7th Circuit, the 5th Circuit, and the 3rd Circuit. So, according to the 11th Circuit, because all four paragraphs of 18 U.S.C. section 1546A, quote, relate to document fraud, end quote, and because that parenthetical is, quote, merely descriptive of section 1546A rather than limiting, end quote, the 11th Circuit determined that Mr. Germain had committed an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A-43P. Now, I know you're all probably very upset that we didn't get to do a categorical analysis in this case, but let me tell you one thing that the 11th Circuit said about the categorical approach in this case. In a footnote, the 11th Circuit rejected Mr. Germain's argument that the court should apply the modified categorical approach. In doing so, the 11th Circuit noted that other sections of the INA enumerate aggravated felonies in general language referring to generic crimes, and therefore, those sections require application of the categorical or modified categorical approach to determine whether a state conviction fits within the federal definition of the generic crime. The INA provision at issue in Mr. Germain's case expressly provides that specific offenses described in 18 U.S.C. section 1546A qualify as aggravated felonies. In other words, because INA section 101A43P specifically refers to a particular section of the federal criminal code, a conviction under that exact federal statute requires no analysis under the categorical or modified categorical approach, quote, because no comparison to generic crimes or elements is necessary, end quote. And that is Jermaine, the U.S. Attorney General. And now we begin the first act of our Ninth Circuit cases this week. First, is Lopez Marroquin v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 18th, 2021. Now, if you are upset that we couldn't do a categorical approach in the last case, well, you're in luck, because this case is about the categorical approach, specifically the categorical approach after the Supreme Court's 2016 decision in Mathis v. United States. And, spoiler alert, 
the Ninth Circuit overrules its 2013 decision in Duenas Alvarez v. Holder regarding California Vehicle Code Section 10851A. So, buckle up. Mr. Lopez Marroquin is from El Salvador. He came to the United States in the 1980s and became an LPR in the 1990s. In 2000, he pleaded guilty to vehicle theft in violation of California Vehicle Code Section 10851A. DHS served him with an NTA 12 years later, charging him as removable based on his convictions. In his removal proceedings, Mr. Lopez Marroquin applied for asylum, withholding of removal, and cat protection, as well as cancellation of removal. The IJ held that Mr. Lopez Marroquin's conviction under Section 10851A was an aggravated felony because while the statute was overbroad, it was also divisible and, under the modified categorical approach, Mr. Lopez Marroquin's record of conviction showed that he committed conduct that qualified as an aggravated felony. As a result, IJ denied Mr. Lopez Marroquin's applications for cancellation of removal and asylum, and the BIA affirmed. However, the Ninth Circuit reversed, finding that vehicle theft under California Vehicle Code Section 10851A is indivisible in its treatment of accessories after the fact, and therefore is not an aggravated felony theft offense under INA Section 101A43G. Now, as a quick refresher on the categorical and modified categorical approaches before getting into the nitty-gritty analysis in this case. To determine whether a state conviction constitutes an aggravated felony, courts follow the three-step process set out in DeComp v. United States. First, the courts apply the categorical approach, comparing the elements of the state statute with the elements of the generic offense, considering only the statutory definitions, not the actual underlying conduct. If the elements of the state offense are the same as or narrower than the generic offense, then the conviction is a categorical match and the analysis stops there. If the elements of the state offense are broader than those of the generic offense, in other words, the state offense criminalizes conduct the generic offense does not, then there is no categorical match and the analysis must continue. If the statute is thus overbroad, then the analysis turns on whether the statute of conviction is divisible, such that it sets out elements of the offense in the alternative, essentially containing multiple different offenses, or indivisible such that it merely sets out alternative means of committing the same crime. If the statute is indivisible, the analysis ends. If the statute is divisible, the analysis moves to the third step, the modified categorical approach. In the Supreme Court's 2016 decision in Mathis, it provided, quote, a clear framework, end quote, to assist courts in analyzing a statute's divisibility at this second step, especially when faced with a disjunctive list or alternatively phrased statutes. Specifically, Mathis instructs that courts should first consult, quote, authoritative sources of law, end quote, that, quote, definitively answer the question, end quote. Now, the Ninth Circuit began the first step of analyzing this statute by noting that the court had previously held, and the parties did not dispute, that this section is overbroad because it criminalizes accessories after the fact, while the generic offense does not. So the analysis here then turned on the second step, whether the statute is divisible or indivisible as to principles and accessories after the fact. And applying the Mathis framework, the Ninth Circuit held that Section 10851A is indivisible in its treatment of accessories after the fact. In doing so, the Ninth Circuit first consulted the, quote, authoritative sources of law, end quote, including California state cases, the statutory text itself, the statute's punitive structure, the pleading requirements, and the jury instructions, and determined that none of these authoritative sources of law, quote, definitively answered the question, end quote. So the Ninth Circuit then followed Mathis's, quote, peek at the record, end quote, instruction, and took a peek at the record of conviction for the limited purpose of determining whether the listed items are elements. But again, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the documents were ambiguous at best. Therefore, the Ninth Circuit concluded that neither the allowable authoritative sources nor the peak at the record satisfied the, quote, demand for certainty, end quote, 
required by the Supreme Court in deciding if a defendant was necessarily convicted of a generic offense. And as a result, the Ninth Circuit held that the statute was indivisible. Now, as I said before, in making its decision in this case, the Ninth Circuit concluded that it was required to overrule Duenas Alvarez, which held three years before Mathis that Section 10851A was divisible between principles and accessories after the fact. Observing that Duenas Alvarez relied solely on the disjunctive phrasing of the statute, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the approach in that case was clearly irreconcilable with Mathis, which instructs courts not to assume that a statute lists alternative elements simply because it contains a disjunctive list. And luckily for Mr. Lopez Marroquin, this meant that he had not been convicted of an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A-43G. So, this is quite a big decision for Ninth Circuit practitioners, as Duenas Alvarez has been one of the leading categorical and modified categorical approach cases in the circuit. But there is a quick dissent here from Judge Callahan, so let's see what she had to say. In dissent, Judge Callahan wrote that this case was, quote, yet another example of the legal gyrations required by the modified categorical approach which leave few the wiser, end quote. Judge Callahan also noted that while she did not read Mathis as compelling a finding of indivisibility, to the extent that it could be read to do so, overruling Duenas Alvarez was a determination that should have been made by an en banc court, not a three-judge panel. And that is Lopez Marroquin v. Garland. And now, I give you all a five-second break to do some legal gyrations. Next up is Gurrier v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 16th, 2021. This case is about judicial review of expedited removal orders after the Supreme Court's decision in DHS v. Thoracium and whether the courts still have jurisdiction to review colorable constitutional claims arising from such orders. First, a quick refresher on expedited removal procedures, as the Ninth Circuit explains it. If a non-citizen is subject to expedited removal procedures, then an immigration officer, quote, must order the non-citizen removed from the United States without further hearing or review, end quote. However, If a non-citizen claims asylum or expresses a fear of persecution, then the non-citizen has three administrative opportunities to establish a credible fear of persecution. First, during a credible fear interview, in which an asylum officer will determine whether the non-citizen has a credible fear of persecution. Second, if the officer finds that the non-citizen does not have a credible fear, then during a review of the determination by a supervisor. And third, If the supervisor agrees with the officer, then during an appeal to an IJ, who can then take further evidence and make a de novo determination. But, if the IJ agrees that the non-citizen lacks a credible fear of persecution, then the case is returned to DHS for removal of the non-citizen. And, under Title VIII of the Code of Federal Regulations, Section 1208.30, quote, the immigration judge's decision is final and may not be appealed, end quote. Okay, on to the facts. Mr. Gourier is a citizen of Haiti, and he entered unlawfully in 2019, was immediately apprehended by the government, and was issued an expedited removal order. He expressed fear of persecution upon return to Haiti, and was then given a credible fear interview. Importantly here, Mr. Gourier's primary language is Creole, and he does not speak English. During his credible fear interview, the officer asked whether Mr. Gourier had an attorney, and he stated that, quote, for now, end quote, he did not have a lawyer, but that he, quote, would like to have a lawyer help him, end quote. The officer then explained that an attorney was not required, and asked whether Mr. Gourier felt comfortable without an attorney, and after a bit of a confusing back and forth, Mr. Gourier stated that he would answer the officer's questions and proceed without counsel. The asylum officer determined that Mr. Gourier had failed to establish a credible fear of persecution. And at the end of the interview, 
Mr. Gurrier asked for a list of lawyers and requested review by an IJ. Mr. Gurrier then appeared at the hearing before the IJ without counsel and stated that he was told he would be given a list of lawyers, but that he had not received the list. The IJ informed Mr. Gurrier that he was not entitled to representation and that the promised list of lawyers was an attachment to the paperwork Mr. Gurrier had received for the credible fear review. But Mr. Gurrier said that he didn't see the list and doesn't speak English, so if he did receive it, he did not understand it. But the IJ then again explained that Mr. Gurrier had no right to a lawyer in credible fear review proceedings and proceeded with the hearing. Then, the IJ agreed with the officer's negative credible fear decision. Mr. Gurrier then filed a petition for review, and the government moved to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. The Ninth Circuit began its analysis by discussing INA Section 242A2A and the Court's 2021 decision in Alvarado Herrera v. Garland, discussed on Episode 51 of the podcast, which explained that, quote, the statute provides that no court shall have jurisdiction to review an expedited removal order except as provided in Subsection E, end quote. Subsection E, in turn, limits judicial review to three issues. And, according to the Ninth Circuit, it has frequently determined that it lacks jurisdiction over expedited removal orders in any circumstances other than those expressly accepted by the statute. However, Mr. Gurrier argued that he raised a, quote, colorable constitutional claim, end quote, and as such, he qualifies for an exception to the general rule that the courts lack jurisdiction to review challenges to expedited removal orders. As the Ninth Circuit explains, it has previously suggested a possible colorable constitutional claim exception to this general rule, first in its 2016 decision in Pena v. Lynch. And after that decision, the Ninth Circuit issued several unpublished decisions, again recognizing a colorable constitutional claim exception. So Mr. Gurrier used these cases and argued that, unlike in Pena, where the IJ had elicited a voluntary waiver of counsel during the procedures and thus did not violate the petitioner's right to due process, Mr. Gurrier had, quote, continually expressed a desire for counsel during his credible fear interview, and the government had failed to provide vital information in his native language, end quote. And, as a result, Mr. Gurrier claims that this failure violated his right to due process and was a colorable constitutional claim that allowed the court to hear his challenge to his expedited removal order. And the Ninth Circuit agreed that Mr. Gurrier did present a colorable constitutional claim. But despite that, the Ninth Circuit ultimately concluded that the Supreme Court's decision in DHS v. Thoracium compelled the court here to hold that there was no colorable constitutional claim exception to the limits Congress placed on judicial review of challenges to expedited removal orders. The Ninth Circuit then spent some time explaining the procedural history leading up to the Supreme Court's decision in Thoracium and the Supreme Court's actual analysis in that case which you can learn more about if you listen to episode 9 of the podcast. But as relevant to Mr. Gurrier's case, the Ninth Circuit highlights that the Supreme Court had rejected the due process argument in Thoracium as, quote, contrary to more than a century, end quote, of Supreme Court precedent, recognizing that, quote, as to foreigners who have never been naturalized, nor acquired any domicile or residence within the United States, nor even been admitted into the country pursuant to law, the decision of executive or administrative officers acting with powers expressly conferred by Congress are due process of law, end quote. And applying this to Mr. Gurrier's case, the Ninth Circuit determined that the Supreme Court's conclusion in Thoracium precluded the court from reviewing Mr. Gurrier's petition, despite his raising a colorable constitutional claim. And that is Gurrier v. Garland. Next, we have Flores Rodriguez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 16, 2021. This is a case about what notice and opportunity to be heard is necessary in a case involving a possible false claim to U.S. citizenship for someone who claims they believed they were a U.S. citizen. Mr. Flores Rodriguez is from Mexico and he allegedly entered the United States in March of 1989, when he was around two years old. 
Mr. Flores Rodriguez was later arrested by DHS in 2010 in Nevada at the home he lived in with his wife and two sons. During that arrest, he claimed he was a U.S. citizen and that he had a U.S. birth certificate. He was placed in removal proceedings and was charged as removable under INA Section 212A6AI for having entered without inspection. He denied the charge, as well as DHS's allegation as to his alienage. At a hearing in March 2011, DHS introduced several documents to prove Mr. Flores Rodriguez's Mexican alienage, including a 1993 order to show cause issued to Mr. Flores Rodriguez's father showing that he and the entire family had been placed in removal proceedings over 20 years prior, a 1994 order of an immigration judge in which an IJ ordered the entire family removed to Mexico, Mr. Flores Rodriguez's purported Mexican birth certificate, and his father's 1992 asylum application in which he listed Mr. Flores Rodriguez as having been born in Mexico. In a later hearing in 2012, Mr. Flores Rodriguez no longer claimed to be a U.S. citizen and applied for adjustment of status based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen. When the IJ stated at this hearing that there may be a, quote, possible false claim to United States citizenship, end quote, under INA Section 212A6CII, Mr. Flores Rodriguez recognized that he made representations of being a U.S. citizen during his 2010 arrest, but stated that he was eligible for adjustment of status because he had never knowingly made a misrepresentation, as he was raised to believe he was a U.S. citizen. Mr. Flores Rodriguez's attorney also noted that after detaining and interviewing Mr. Flores Rodriguez in 2010, ICE, quote, determined that they didn't think it was appropriate to make a charge of making a false claim of citizenship based upon the circumstances, end quote. The IJ then informed Mr. Flores Rodriguez that, quote, If DHS is pursuing a false claim to citizenship charge, if such a charge were sustained, the respondent wouldn't be eligible for adjustment of status, end quote. But the IJ did not mention the possibility that Mr. Flores Rodriguez's eligibility would be impacted absent such a formal charge. Two years after that hearing, at a 2014 hearing, a new IJ recommended that Mr. Flores Rodriguez testify regarding whether he made a false claim to U.S. citizenship, even though DHS had still not charged him under that ground, and even though neither Mr. Flores Rodriguez nor his attorney had prepared to discuss that issue. But despite that, Mr. Flores Rodriguez did testify, and throughout his testimony, he emphasized that until the current immigration proceedings, he always believed he was born in the United States that he still saw himself as a U.S. citizen and believed he was born in Elko, Nevada, but that he had accepted the IJ's ruling that he had not provided sufficient evidence to prove his U.S. citizenship. The IJ then issued his decision in February 2014, in which he found that the evidence of Mr. Flores Rodriguez's Mexican citizenship and birth was legitimate, that his evidence of U.S. citizenship and birth was not persuasive, and that his claim to U.S. citizenship was not credible because Mr. Flores Rodriguez could not, quote, reasonably believe, and, in fact, did not believe, end quote, that he was a U.S. citizen. The IJ concluded that Mr. Flores Rodriguez was ineligible for adjustment of status because he was inadmissible under INA Section 212A6CII, and the BAA affirmed. In his petition for review, Mr. Flores Rodriguez asserted, and the Ninth Circuit agreed, that he was not put on notice that his alleged false claim of citizenship would be at issue in his 2014 hearing. As the Ninth Circuit recognized, quote, notice and an opportunity to be heard are fundamental elements of due process, end quote. According to the Ninth Circuit, no such notice was available to Mr. Flores Rodriguez here, because... By the time Mr. Flores Rodriguez had his final hearing in 2014, his alleged false claim of citizenship had not been raised by the IJ for two years, and the last time it had been discussed, the IJ implied it would only be dispositive if DHS sustained a false claim of citizenship charge against him, 
but DHS never even brought such a charge. Despite all this, the IJ stated that the alleged false claim of citizenship was, quote, the main issue, end quote, during the 2014 hearing and in the IJ's final decision. But according to the Ninth Circuit, Mr. Flores Rodriguez was not given notice of this before the hearing, and as a result, he had not briefed the issue, his attorney was not prepared to discuss the issue in detail, Mr. Flores Rodriguez was unable to provide key witnesses or evidence on the matter, and the witnesses who were available and testified at the hearing were not prepared to discuss the false claim issue. And according to the Ninth Circuit, this lack of notice and opportunity to be heard, quote, may have affected the outcome of the hearing, end quote. So, while the Ninth Circuit, quote, expressed no opinion, end quote, as to whether Mr. Flores Rodriguez was actually inadmissible under INA Section 212A6CII, it stated that, quote, what is of signal importance in our system of justice is that when a person is charged with a crime or charged with allegations warranting removal from the country, that person is fairly entitled to notice of the claims against him and an opportunity to be heard in opposition, end quote. Because the Ninth Circuit believed that Mr. Flores Rodriguez was not afforded such notice and opportunity here, it granted Mr. Flores Rodriguez's petition for review and remanded the case to the BIA to hold proceedings that provided Mr. Flores Rodriguez due process before a decision is made. And that is Flores Rodriguez v. Garland. Next up, Die v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 20th, 2021. This case is the result of the Supreme Court's decision in Garland v. Die, which you can learn about on episode 58 of the podcast. As a brief refresher, the Supreme Court rejected the Ninth Circuit's, quote, deemed true or credible rule, end quote, which required the court in absence of an explicit adverse credibility finding by the agency, to assume the credibility and truth of a non-citizen's factual contentions. Instead, the Supreme Court ruled that, quote, so long as the record contains contrary evidence of a kind and quality that a reasonable fact finder could find sufficient, a reviewing court may not overturn the agency's factual determination, end quote, in that an IJ is, quote, free to credit part of a witness's testimony without necessarily accepting it all, end quote. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into detail about the facts or procedural history of Mr. Dye's case. If you'd like to learn more about them, please go listen to Kevin detail them in episode 58. Here on remand from the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit now concluded that, quote, any fair reading of the agency's decisions in this case indicates that it did not find Mr. Dye's case to be persuasive, end quote. Now, as Kevin stated in episode 58, the Supreme Court in Garland v. Dye did note that the INA does in fact provide for a, quote, presumption of credibility, end quote, on appeal to the BIA in certain matters where the IJ does not make an express credibility finding. But here, following the Supreme Court's guidance, the Ninth Circuit determined that, Quote, the BIA implicitly considered Mr. Dye's statutory rebuttable presumption of credibility on appeal to have been conclusively rebutted by the factual record, end quote. And the Ninth Circuit concluded that, quote, the agency's finding of fact and conclusions drawn therefrom are demonstrably reasonable, end quote, and that no reasonable adjudicator could conclude otherwise. As a result, the Ninth Circuit here on remand denied Mr. Dye's petition for review. And that is Die v. Garland. Now it's time for our brief interlude from the Second Circuit in Liang v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on August 19th, 2021. This is another case about adverse credibility determinations. Mr. Liang is from China and unlawfully entered the United States in 2015. He was detained, passed a credible fear interview, and then placed in removal proceedings. He conceded removability and applied for asylum, withholding, and protection under the Convention Against Torture, 
alleging that the Chinese government had persecuted him because of his Christian faith, and that the Chinese government would track him down and persecute him again on account of his Christian faith upon his return to China. As supporting evidence to his asylum application, Mr. Liang submitted a statement alleging that he was arrested, detained, and beaten by Chinese police officers after he had been found handing out flyers for underground church services. His family and friends also submitted letters of support on Mr. Liang's behalf, describing the alleged persecution Mr. Liang suffered and corroborating his Christian faith. At his asylum hearing, Mr. Liang testified on direct examination about many of the things in his previous statement, and he also claimed, for the first time since his credible fear interview, that he believed the Chinese government would detain him if he were to return there because his name was on a national blacklist. But he did not explain how he knew that his name was on that blacklist. On cross-examination, Mr. Liang stated, for the first time ever, that the Chinese police had told his father that Mr. Liang was on the blacklist when the police allegedly visited his house in October 2014. He further asserted that his church friend also knew he was on the blacklist, because the friend was on the blacklist as well. When the IJ asked why neither his father nor his friend included this information in their letters of support, Mr. Liang said they didn't know, quote, that their statements had to be that detailed, end quote. The IJ concluded that Mr. Liang's explanations were insufficient and rendered him not credible. The IJ also concluded that even if Mr. Liang was credible, he did not have an objectively reasonable fear of future persecution. As a result, the IJ denied Mr. Liang's applications, and the BAA affirmed the IJ's determinations on both grounds. On petition for review, the Second Circuit turned to the credibility issue first. As the Second Circuit explained, it has previously cautioned that, quote, omissions are less probative of credibility than inconsistencies created by direct contradictions in the evidence, end quote, and, in its 2018 decision, Hong Fai Gao, the Second Circuit set forth three limits on an IJ's ability to base an adverse credibility determination on an omission alone. First, quote, a trivial omission that has no tendency to suggest a petitioner fabricated his or her claim will not support an adverse credibility determination, end quote. Two, the IJ must, quote, evaluate each omission in light of the totality of the circumstances and all relevant factors, end quote, including the applicant's explanation for the omission. And three, in assessing the materiality of a particular omission, the IJ must remain mindful that petitioners, quote, are not required to list every incident of persecution on their I-589 statement, end quote. In short, the Second Circuit requires IJs to consider, quote, whether the omitted facts are ones that a credible petitioner would reasonably have been expected to disclose under the relevant circumstances, end quote. The Second Circuit also clarified that while new testimony volunteered by a non-citizen on direct examination is, quote, more pernicious, end quote, than new testimony elicited on cross-examination, the latter can still be the basis of an adverse credibility finding if it is, quote, an apparent attempt by the applicant to enhance his chances of success by embellishing his story, end quote. Applying those limitations here, the Second Circuit determined that the IJ's adverse credibility finding was supported by substantial evidence. In doing so, the court identified the omission at issue as Mr. Lang's failure to supply before cross-examination any testimony or evidence suggesting how he knew he was on a national blacklist. In other words, the testimony that Mr. Liang had given for the first time on cross-examination, that the Chinese government had returned to his family's home in October 2014 and told Mr. Liang's father that Mr. Liang was on the blacklist, and that Mr. Liang's friend was on the blacklist and knew that Mr. Liang was on it as well. According to the Second Circuit, these, quote, belated disclosures, end quote, were unsupported by other record evidence, notably the letters from both his father and his friend, and they did not, quote, concern some minor extraneous detail, end quote, 
Rather, the omissions were, quote, critical information that he would reasonably have been expected to disclose much earlier, end quote. This is because these omissions were, according to the Second Circuit, quote, the difference between this being a discrete incident at the hands of local police officers and a coordinated campaign by national officials, end quote. And they were, quote, centrally important to the issue of whether Mr. Liang could avoid persecution by relocating to a different area of China, end quote. The Second Circuit also determined that Mr. Liang's omissions, quote, significantly impeded the agency's fact-finding capabilities, end quote, because Mr. Liang waited until the end of the process to disclose this important information, and the only people Mr. Liang said could corroborate the information had not included it in their written statements, thus leaving the IJ with, quote, limited ability to verify it without continuing the proceeding to a later date, end quote. And while the Second Circuit noted that the IJ could have continued the proceeding to collect corroborating evidence, the Second Circuit believed, quote, there was no obligation to do so, end quote. So, under the totality of the circumstances, the Second Circuit concluded that the IJ was, quote, clearly justified in concluding that Mr. Liang manufactured this belated testimony in an effort to bolster his application and fill gaps in his story, end quote. The Second Circuit then quickly dispensed of the second issue, whether Mr. Liang had an objectively reasonable fear of persecution, by explaining that all of the analyses required for this issue were tainted by the IJ's reasonable adverse credibility finding, and that the one analysis that was not tainted by that finding, whether China had a pattern or practice of persecuting Christians, was not supported by the record. So as a result, the Second Circuit determined that Mr. Liang had not met his burden to demonstrate a well-founded fear of future persecution, and denied his petition. And that is Liang v. Garland. And now, time for our last act of Ninth Circuit cases. Next up is Sharma v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 17th, 2021. This is a case about what conduct rises to the level of past persecution and an objectively reasonable fear of future persecution for asylum and related relief. Mr. Sharma is from India, and he entered the United States in 1997 as a non-immigrant visitor. In 2011, DHS served Mr. Sharma with an NTA, charging him as removable for remaining in the United States longer than authorized. He conceded removability and filed for asylum, withholding, and protection under CAT. In support of his application, he asserted that he had been threatened, beaten, kidnapped, abused, and had his business destroyed by a high-ranking member of the police in India and his followers after Mr. Sharma openly disagreed with the member, investigated his alleged wrongdoings, and organized a public protest against him. The IJ determined that while Mr. Sharma was, quote, generally credible, end quote, his past harm did not rise to the level of persecution or torture, and that Mr. Sharma was unlikely to suffer future persecution or torture. The IJ then also denied Mr. Sharma's request for voluntary departure, quote, as a matter of discretion, end quote. On petition for review, the Ninth Circuit held that the harm Mr. Sharma suffered, quote, while disgraceful, end quote, did not rise to the level of past persecution. This was because, according to the Ninth Circuit, there was no evidence that Mr. Sharma suffered significant physical harm in India, that the physical harm he did suffer was limited to one episode of arrest and detention, that Mr. Sharma had not identified any injuries he suffered, nor did he claim he needed medical treatment, that the incident was an isolated incident lasting only 18 to 19 hours, that while Mr. Sharma received threats over a period of years, they were, quote, generally anonymous and vague, end quote, and while they were, quote, unpleasant, unquote, they did not cause, quote, significant actual suffering or harm, end quote. And while the police's interference in Mr. Sharma's business, quote, 
was reprehensible, end quote. The police did not threaten his life if he returned to his business, and Mr. Sharma did not assert that he was foreclosed from finding other employment. As to whether Mr. Sharma established a well-founded fear of future persecution, the Ninth Circuit held that substantial evidence supported the IJ's and the BIA's finding that Mr. Sharma had not carried his burden to make this showing. This is because there was insufficient evidence to establish that his persecutor or his followers would still have a continuing interest in Mr. Sharma over 20 years after his last encounter with them. Mr. Sharma's wife and son continue to safely reside in India, and they have never been physically harmed. And, after the alleged maltreatment began, Mr. Sharma had traveled freely and returned to India without harm. So the Ninth Circuit held that Mr. Sharma failed to establish that he suffered past persecution or torture, or that he would suffer future persecution or torture. The Ninth Circuit then held that it lacked jurisdiction to review the denial of voluntary departure because it was made as, quote, a matter of discretion, end quote, and his challenge did not raise any constitutional or legal issues that would allow the court to review the challenge under INA Section 242A2D. Ultimately, the Ninth Circuit denied Mr. Sharma's petition as to the asylum, withholding, and cap protection claims, and dismissed Mr. Sharma's petition as to the voluntary departure claim. And that is Sharma v. Garland. Next up, Villa Lobos Sura v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 17, 2021. This case is about what evidence can meet the standard for triggering the serious non-political crime bar to withholding of removal. Mr. Villa Lobos Sura is from El Salvador and served in the Salvadoran Army. As part of his service, he helped local Salvadoran police arrest gang members including members of MS-13. In February 2016, he was threatened by two MS-13 members who told him they had orders for Mr. Villalobosura to disappear. He then completed his military service in June or July of 2016 and then left his home in El Salvador in August 2016. Mr. Villalobosura then entered the United States in September or October of 2016. He was placed in withholding-only proceedings and applied for withholding of removal and protection under CAT. Then, in July 2017, a foreign arrest warrant was issued for Mr. Villalobosuda and four others, asserting that they murdered four MS-13 gang members in May 2016 and charging them with, quote, aggravated murder, end quote, and for being in contempt of court in absentia for failing to appear to answer the charge. An Interpol red notice was also issued against Mr. Villalobosuda. During his hearing, Mr. Villalobosura conceded that he matched the identity of the person described in the arrest warrant and the red notice, and that he was stationed only five kilometers away from the site of the murders. But he denied any prior knowledge of the warrant, any role in the murders, and that he ever visited the city where the murders occurred. Mr. Villalobosura then asserted that he feared returning to El Salvador and being placed in criminal custody based on the allegedly false charges, where he believed he would be vulnerable to the MS-13 gang members, as well as the former colleagues he claimed framed him for the murders, and that this would be the case anywhere in El Salvador. The IJ ordered Mr. Villalobosura removed, relying on the arrest warrant and the red notice to find that Mr. Villalobosura was statutorily ineligible for withholding of removal under the serious non-political crime bar, because the evidence, quote, raised serious reasons to believe that he committed aggravated murder, end quote. Alternatively, the IJ also held that Mr. Villalobosura did not meet the requirements for withholding of removal on the merits. As to the CAT claim, the IJ also found that Mr. Villalobosura could not show a probability of torture and that he could not show that the government would participate or acquiesce in any torture. The BIA affirmed, relying in part on its 2020 decision in matter of WERB, in which it determined that a red notice alone may be sufficient for the serious non-political crime bar to apply. The Ninth Circuit first addressed the serious non-political crime bar issue. In the Ninth Circuit, the serious reasons standard under the serious non-political crime bar is, quote, 
tantamount to probable cause, end quote, which exists when there is a fair probability that the defendant committed the alleged crime. While the Ninth Circuit noted that it had never held that either a foreign arrest warrant or a red notice alone are enough to establish probable cause, it also noted that it had previously ruled in Silva Pereira v. Lynch in 2016 and Guan v. Barr in 2019 that, quote, arrest warrants and other government documents provide probable cause when supported by other evidence, end quote. Under these precedential decisions, the Ninth Circuit determined that, quote, the arrest warrant and the red notice provided by the government combined with the incredibility of Mr. Villalobos-Sura's testimony, establish the requisite probable cause, end quote. This was so for three reasons. First, the arrest warrant, quote, created an indication of reliability, end quote, by including Mr. Villalobos-Sura's name and identifying information, explaining that he was accused of aggravated murder, listing the names of the victims, and implying that the charged murders were gang-related. Second, the red notice contained a brief and consistent description of events. And third, Mr. Villalobos-Sura admitted that the identifying information in the documents fit his description, his testimony placed him within several miles of the murder at the time of the crimes, and he conceded that a Salvadoran arrest warrant requires a witness, suggesting that the Salvadoran government had additional evidence. Mr. Villalobos-Sura tried to rebut the government's evidence by providing country conditions reports and his own testimony about the corruption in El Salvador's law enforcement and judicial system. But the Ninth Circuit concluded that substantial evidence supported the IJ's findings that Mr. Villalobos-Sura's testimony was, quote, self-serving and unpersuasive, end quote, when compared to the evidence submitted by the government, and that Mr. Villalobos-Sura's decision to flee El Salvador, quote, soon after the alleged events occurred, end quote, was suspicious, given that he could have fled several months earlier if he were actually motivated to flee by the gang threat. As a result, the Ninth Circuit held that substantial evidence supported the BIA's determination that Mr. Villalobos-Sura failed to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that the bar did not apply. Turning quickly to protection under CAT, the Ninth Circuit again agreed with the BIA that Mr. Villalobos-Sura failed to establish that he would face torture and that any torture he may face would be caused by or with the consent or acquiescence of the Salvadoran government. So, because substantial evidence, including the red notice, arrest warrant, and Mr. Villalobos-Sura's own concessions, supported the BIA's finding that there were, quote, serious reasons to believe, end quote, that Mr. Villalobos-Sura committed the four murders, and because substantial evidence supported the BIA's finding that Mr. Villalobos-Sura could not show torture by the government or with the government's acquiescence, the Ninth Circuit denied Mr. Villalobos-Sura's petition. And that is Villalobos-Sura v. Garland. And now, for our last case this week, Plancarte Sauceda v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 20th, 2021. This case is mainly about particular social groups and what may be considered an immutable characteristic. Miss Plancarte and her minor son are from Mexico. Miss Plancarte is a licensed nurse and claimed that she was abducted, beaten, and forced to provide medical services to drug cartel members numerous times, both at and outside the hospital where she worked, and that she was threatened by such members with physical violence and even death to herself and her family if she did not comply with the cartel's demands. She detailed numerous instances of being forced to provide such medical services, and after the last instance, where the members kidnapped her son until she helped them, she fled to the United States with her son. When she arrived in the United States, she immediately expressed her fear of return. She later applied for asylum and related relief, asserting she feared persecution on account of her membership in the particular social group of, quote, female nurses, end quote. The IJ found Ms. Plancarte credible, but denied her applications. And while the IJ did analyze some particular social groups and found them insufficient, the IJ didn't actually consider Ms. Plancarte's proposed particular social group of female nurses. The IJ also denied cat protection, stating that Ms. Plancarte had not shown that, quote, 
public officials were involved in her being pressed into servitude for the cartel as a nurse. End quote. The BIA found that while the IJ did err in not considering Ms. Plancarte's particular social group of female nurses, the error was harmless because, according to the BIA, being a nurse is not an immutable characteristic. In making this conclusion, the BIA relied on its 1985 decision in Matter of Acosta, in which the BIA found that the proposed particular social group of taxi drivers, or members of a taxi collective who refused to participate in guerrilla-sponsored work stoppage, did not involve any immutable characteristics because the members could avoid threat either by changing jobs or by cooperating in the work stoppages. The BIA found that being a female nurse, like being a taxi driver, was similarly not immutable. But the Ninth Circuit disagreed, explaining that the BIA erred by simply citing Matter of Acosta without providing any meaningful analysis about the immutability of female nurses. Specifically, the Ninth Circuit stated that Ms. Plancarte cannot avoid compulsion by the cartel simply by changing jobs, because even if she ceased employment as a nurse, she would still be a nurse as she has received specialized medical training and has a professional license as a nurse. So, regardless of whether she would continue to work as a licensed nurse, Ms. Plancarte lacked, quote, the power to change, end quote, the immutable nursing characteristics, her medical knowledge and nursing skills that make her important to the cartel. The Ninth Circuit, therefore, granted the petition with respect to Ms. Plancarte's asylum and withholding of removal claims. As to Ms. Plancarte's CAT claim, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the BIA ignored, quote, uncontradicted record evidence showing both acquiescence and direct involvement by the government officials, end quote. The Ninth Circuit concluded that substantial evidence, quote, compels the conclusion that there was official involvement and acquiescence in the cartel forcing Ms. Plancarte to provide medical treatment to the cartel, end quote. The Ninth Circuit therefore also granted Ms. Plancarte's petition with respect to the CAT claim. Now, the court discussed one procedural thing in this case related to venue. Under INA Section 242b2, quote, the petition for review shall be filed with the Court of Appeals for the Judicial Circuit in which the immigration judge completed the proceedings, end quote. There was a threshold question here of where exactly the immigration judge completed proceedings. Apparently, Ms. Plancarte had originally been placed in front of an IJ in Salt Lake City, Utah, but then the IJ transferred venue to Boise, Idaho. Now, while the two final hearing notices in Ms. Plancarte's case were issued by the Utah Immigration Court, the designated hearing location was Boise, and the final hearing was ultimately conducted remotely, with the IJ and government counsel in Salt Lake City and Ms. Plancarte, her attorney, and her interpreter in Boise. Moreover, all the orders were entered in the name of the Utah Immigration Court, but the IJ specified that proceedings were being conducted at the Salt Lake City Court's Boise, Idaho hearing location. Now, if the immigration judge completed proceedings in Salt Lake City, Utah, then venue should have been in the 10th Circuit. If the immigration judge completed proceedings in Boise, Idaho, then venue was proper in the 9th Circuit, and the 9th Circuit concluded the latter, that venue under INA Section 242b2 was proper in the 9th Circuit. This is because the IJ formally transferred venue from Salt Lake City to Boise. Ms. Plancarte never physically appeared in Salt Lake City. The IJ indicated that proceedings were conducted in Boise, and the BIA held that proper venue was in the Ninth Circuit. Both final hearing notices designated Boise as the location for the final hearing, and the statute expressly allows any of the participants in a removal hearing to appear at a designated hearing location by video conference and the IJ and the government attorney elected to do so from Salt Lake City. And that is Plancarte Salceda v. Garland. And that's Curtains on This Week and my brief run leading you all on this wild ride that is navigating the U.S. immigration laws. I've had a great time learning with you guys over the past three weeks, and I hope you did too. Be sure to give Kevin a big welcome back listening party next week. I'm sure he's missed you all. Have a great week, everyone. And you never know, maybe I'll show back up here again. Bye. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. 
I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.